All those who are holding tickets outside will get in as fast as they can. I'm speaking not to you, ladies and gentlemen, but I'm speaking to the crowd on the outside who seem to be standing rather reluctant to come in, and we're going to start this very soon. Martin Scorsese once said, cinema is a matter of what's in the frame and what's out. As we begin this episode, we look back on an era of filmmaking that had almost no rules, the pre-code era. Everything from sex, alcohol, drugs, domestic abuse, gender roles, just to name a few, gave filmmakers the freedom to create almost whatever they wanted to talk about. In 1930, the Motion Picture Production Code was developed in order to appease Hollywood's critics. The code was a self-regulatory measure which outlined specific do's and don'ts concerning what should appear on American movie screens. The code was strictly enforced in 1934 when all films were required to have certificates of approval issued by the Production Code Administration. So what was in frame was a representation for what was out of frame. The creative freedoms that were awarded to Hollywood's most creative minds gave them the loudspeaker that society needed to open up. Until the code was heavily enforced, creatives were strapped from being able to forward themselves as not just artists, but as social commentators. Pre-code Hollywood gave much more than just softcore erotica for that time. It gave liberties that are now commonplace in entertainment today. This is where we begin this episode of Worthy, where we talk about the film It Happened One Night from 1934, which was released four months prior to the stricter enforcements of the code. So John, where we begin this discussion of the pre-code era of Hollywood, what are your initial thoughts and honestly preconceived notions of what that era represented before we even talk about what happened in what happened one night? Well, I think it's important to talk about how films are suppressed or changed based on the studio. And I'm a big advocate on, you know, freedom of expression, freedom of speech, and not having uh, an art or a director or a producer or a creator behind some sort of product or art to be suppressed or changed in any way. So I've never been a fan of any kind of restrictions, even ratings I understand are based on kind of an audience and not showing a wrong audience, something that's too mature. But in terms of a code banning and restricting things, it's something that I don't think should exist. And I don't think, um, should really ever be a thing. And I think looking back on it, it's something that they learned their lesson on, even though this is just the very beginning of, uh, of when the code kind of officially hits. So we'll see moving on from here, how it affects the films moving forward. But uh, I think it was a nice little perfect timing for It Happened One Night because it was released just before it, and it really hits the head on a lot of these, especially sexual themes that the code restricts and stops. Yeah, certainly. And I, I feel the same way you know, about ratings and like codes for uh, you know, being strict, you know, restricting certain things about films and, wh- and what they can do and what they can represent. You know, for for me, like especially for today's world and today's films, uh, ratings almost mean nothing because a PG thirteen film now was like a rated R film back in like the nineties, even the early two thousands. Before rated R films existed, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it's like it, it's always it's a fluid way we, that society uh, looks at films and is able to kind of take it in. You know, I and I think that's important. I, I was actually raised <laughs> at a very a very weird way where I was allowed to watch almost whatever I wanted to watch. So like at a young age, I was watching films like Animal House or like American Pie and the, maybe that you know screwed me up in many other ways. But what it did allow for me was that censorship shouldn't really be a thing. You should be allowed to not only in, 
take in what you want to watch, but also create what you want. Um, and again, like obviously we're not saying you can just like film yourself murdering someone or, or, or you know, any like kind of weird thing, but you can creatively in ways go to certain lengths that you, we wouldn't have been able to go to before. And this era of the pre-code before 1934, it was extremely important for not really just violence on screen, but freedom of expression, sexualization, you know, femininity, masculinity. It's a, those are very important topics that weren't really discussed that are now being discussed in these pre-code era films that almost gets shut out for a 40 year period almost. So it's, it's very interesting. So this movie does come out at the right time. Uh, so what makes it happen one night pre-code era film, you may be asking. Like, why does this film stand out? Well, if you have ever seen a rom-com or, and I think specifically it's, it's shown in this one uh, TV show called Sex in the City, where a character lifts up their leg to reveal uh, their upper thigh and it attracts men, it stops cars. I know it was famously done in that, but that comes from It Happened One Night when Claudette Colbert lifts up her skirt to attract a car, an, a, a car that's coming by because uh, they're trying to hitchhike and the car stops immediately because he's seeing a girl in her thigh. And that was a big deal for the time. Yeah, I think that's the most iconic scene and something that probably pushed audiences um, maybe a little bit too far, but it also probably, you know, maybe awoken people seeing that in theaters. And this may have been, you know, further reasoning for people to say, yeah, the code should exist. But as we can see now and recording this in 2020, like the line keeps getting pushed and pushed and pushed. And that was like really the beginning of um, not only sexuality on screen, because there's been nudity before this, but really of pushing and the film is a lot about sexuality. Like yeah. sex is a huge part about the film without really directly showing it. Um, it's constantly being referenced and it's, there's so much sexual tension between the main two characters. And I think, um, yeah, it's, it's so evident watching this film that it's just like oozes sexuality, which definitely probably, uh, rub people the wrong way. Yeah. And, the, and the scene that I mentioned was just like the main scene that everyone kind of looks toward looks towards as like one of these examples. Um, if you actually, I think if you Google pre-code era Hollywood on the Wikipedia page, like that shot is on that page to kind of talk about sex and movies. So it's a very, even though in today's world in 2020, a girl lifting up her skirt just to show the top of her, like barely the top of her thigh, that was like crazy for 1934. But that's not the only scene that happened. Uh, there are, so the, the two main characters in the film are unmarried, but they sleep in the same room as they travel, pretending to be a married couple, uh, which is complete which was a big no-no back then you can especially for a woman you cannot be just going around with some random man unmarried especially trying to rent a room who would ever have thought about that being a thing that you can't do <laughs> in 1934 yeah i mean there's so much sexual tension when uh, clark gable's character peter is undressing and he kind of asks ellie to undress as well because uh, they're going to bed it's not really him asking or forcing her to do it. it's just like well these are the this is the situation we're in like you're going to get down with it and we're gonna just go to bed and that's it like this is not sexual but there's clear that there's like so much sexual tension um from both of them back and forth um and it even leads to like the very end of the film which uh, we can talk a little bit about but we'll go into detail more um that it really just the the main end of the film is just them having sex like the the official confirmation of their relationship being a thing cements with them having sex and they don't show it but it's very 
heavily yeah, oh, it's, it's that the walls of Jericho heavy. come down. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, we will get into that, but it does ooze a lot of you know sexual appeal and uh, sexual prov- provocation, uh, if you would like to use those words. Um, but even like that scene you were just referencing with uh, uh, Clark Gable getting undressed, like literally a second later, there's a shot of of Claudette Colbert's character Ellie, where she's in the it's like in the same room but it's sort of dark but it's still light enough where you could see just the top of her chest and that's very suggestive as well so it's a lot of these scenes where they it's very suggestive we're going to keep using that word it's just suggestive on every level uh on so many fronts but mainly sex and and i think that's what makes such an appealing film to talk about because it completely stands out as like this is from this era shouldn't this be from almost from the 60s the seventies, the eighties, like it should not be from 1934, but it is from that. And that's where we begin this episode of worthy where we ask the question, is it happened one night worthy of the Academy award for best picture of 1934. It happened one night. A spoiled heiress running away from her family is helped by a man who is actually a reporter in need of a story. Ellen, Ellie Andrews, has eloped with a pilot and fortune hunter, King Wesley, against the wishes of her extremely wealthy father, Alexander Andrews, who wants to have the marriage annulled because he knows that Wesley is really interested only in Ellie's money. Jumping ship in Florida, Ellie runs away and boards a Greyhound bus to New York City to reunite with her husband. She meets fellow passenger Peter Warren, a newspaper reporter who recently lost his job. Soon, Peter recognizes her and gives her a choice. If she gives him an exclusive on her story, he will help her reunite with Wesley. If not, he will tell her father where she is. Ellie agrees to the first option. As they go through several adventures together, Ellie loses her initial disdain for Peter and they begin to fall in love. When the bus breaks down and they begin hitchhiking, they fail to secure a ride until Ellie displays a shapely leg to Danker, the next driver. When they stop en route, Danker tries to steal their luggage, but Peter chases him down and seizes his Model T. Near the end of their journey, Ellie confesses her love to Peter. The owners of the motel in which they stay notice that Peter's car is gone, and so they expel Ellie. Believing Peter has deserted her, Ellie telephones her father, who agrees to let her marry Wesley. Meanwhile, Peter has obtained money from his editor to marry Ellie, but he misses her on the road. Although Ellie has no desire to be with Wesley, she believes that Peter has betrayed her for the reward money and so agrees to have a second formal wedding with Wesley. On the wedding day, she finally reveals the whole story to her father. When Peter comes to Ellie's home, Andrews offers him the reward money, but Peter insists on being paid only his expenses, a paltry $39.60 for items that he had been forced to sell to buy gasoline. When Andrews presses Peter for an explanation of his odd behavior and demands to know if he loves her, Peter first tries to dodge the questions, but then admits that he does love Ellie, and he storms out. Wesley arrives for the wedding via an auto gyro, but at the ceremony, Andrews reveals to his daughter about Peter's refusal of the reward money, and tells her that her car is waiting by the back gate in case she changes her mind. At the last minute, just before she says I do, she decides to not go through with the wedding. Ellie dumps Wesley at the altar, bolts for her car, and drives away as a newsreel camera's crank. A few days later, Andrews is working at his desk when Wesley calls to tell him that he will take the financial settlement and not contest the annulment. His executive assistant brings him a telegram from Peter. What's holding up the annulment, you slowpoke? The walls of Jericho are toppling. 
That is a reference to a makeshift wall to give them privacy made of a blanket over a wire that was tied across the rooms that they slept in between them. With the annulment in hand, Andrew sends the reply. Let him topple. The last scene has Peter's battered Model T parked in a motor court in Glensfall, Michigan. The mom and pop owners talk and wonder why, on such a warm night, the newlyweds, he had seen the marriage license, wanted a clothesline, an extra blanket, and the little tin trumpet that he has gotten for them. As they look at the cabin, the toy trumpet sounds a fanfare, the blanket falls to the floor, and the lights in the cabin go out. It happened one night, starred Clark Gable as Peter Warren, Claudette Colbert as Ellie Andrews, Walter Connolly as Alexander Andrews, Roscoe Carnes as Oscar Shapley, and Jameson Thomas as King Wesley. The film was directed by Frank Capra, written by Robert Riskin, produced by Frank Capra, and Harry Cohn. Music by Howard Jackson. Cinematography by Joseph Walker. Film editing by Gene Havlick. And it was nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Actress, and Best Writing Adaptation. So before I think we initially get into our main review of It Happened One Night, from a big broad picture standpoint, this film is genred as a screwball comedy, which I think now we would call that just a romantic comedy. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's it's something that we have to stop and talk about because it's so different than all the other movies that we've seen so far. Not in just in terms of genre, but in terms of its characters, in terms of its tone. Um, so I wanted to list off a couple films since this is such an inspirational film for the overall romantic comedy genre. And it really has set the precedence. It's almost like a paint-by-number film at this point where yeah. you see all these other rom-coms and they're just so tied to this film because it kind of set the standard of what a rom-com and what a good really really good rom-com yeah. should be and not even just like a, a rom-com but also like a road trip movie yeah a, definitely uh, yeah. i don't know you can i there's so many movies that you could base this film off of that is such a very like I'm, and i'm gonna use like a standard movie it's very cookie cutter but cookie cutter in a very good way yeah i mean when you look at it now it feels even more cooker cut cookie cutter <laughs> because it's you just see all the elements that it's perfectly setting up to like this final end you know, it's the first film that has a bride running away from uh, the wedding. So that alone is such a huge cliche that we've known. To, and at this point, if we saw it in a movie, it's laughable because we've yeah. just seen it so often. So and like things that uh, or films that you might reference to look back at, like even films like uh, Shrek or You've Got Mail, 27 Dresses, The Sound of Music, The African Queen, Clueless, Twilight, all these films just directly reference or just are inspired heavily by this film. So I want to ask you, Ben. Yeah. What's your general opinion of rom-coms? Are you a big fan, or is it like particular ones that you uh, kind of only agree with or be down with? I'm not. I'm not a huge fan of rom-coms. Um, I love. I love just generic comedies, but rom-coms to me are very. Uh, I'm just going to say basic <laughs> and, and I don't mean that in a negative way, but it's just like, it's not really my cup of tea, what I'm going to go sit down and watch, but also what I go sit down and watch is not what everyone else wants to watch. So you give a little, you take a little, but uh, the movie that you point out as being, and I think actually is the closest representation of it happened one night really is Shrek. And if you watch Shrek, you could pick up on a lot of what happens and it happened one night it's it's really weird but it's really funny how a movie like that that came out you know like 70 years later directly mirrors uh you know this specific film so 
Uh, romantic comedies are not my thing, but I know there are a lot of other people's things. What about you? Um, yeah, I love rom coms, but it's it has to be that particular, you know, that particular blend of having great actors, having an interesting story that you know is not you know a paint by number like I was saying that you can look at this film as, but something that where it's unexpected yet you have a satisfying ending. And I think a lot of the rom coms that I love are two characters that are really opposing each other. Either they dislike each other for certain reasons, whether it's their job or their overall attitude. Like, I love films with Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan, like You've Got Mail, uh, because there is this kind of disdain for each other. Uh, You've Got Mail is specifically about, um, you know, bookstores and big bookstores kind of competing with the larger uh, online retailers. uh, Or I don't believe they're online, but whatever, that's not the point. (laughs) But when two characters are opposing and you kind of learn to fall in love with each one's side, and then you have that dynamic where you're kind of like tugging and pulling on each character... And then that as an audience, you're kind of having to decide whose side you're on. And then you get to a point where you're like, oh, it's not like a side. It's their their connectivity. It's the way they connect with one each other. That is why I like them, not just because of one good performance or one bad performance. It's their chemistry. And people always talk about chemistry in films with one actor or the other. And I think it's so integral for a rom-com for two characters to have chemistry because if it doesn't, then you just don't believe it and the whole film falls apart. Um, once you get to an ending that is supposed to be two characters coming together, and if you don't believe that they're even supposed to be together or should be together, then what's the point of a rom-com? So to sum it up, I love rom-coms. It just has to be the right rom-com. And I think It Happened One Night is the right rom-com. It is a great rom-com. Yeah, it's definitely a great rom-com. And I, when you're talking about chemistry, uh, for me, the biggest thing that just oozes out of this film, and I really say oozes out of this film because there's so much about it, is the chemistry between... Clark Gable and Claudette Colbert because it is it is immediately you can tell immediately when they are first interacting with each other it is it's perfect it hits it right on the head of the nail they they don't miss a beat every scene is engaging they their dialogue is quick it's natural it fits with the characters and even though you could hear like behind the scenes stories about they didn't like each other that Claudette Colbert like really made a big fuss about the movie. She did not like the production. Like everyone had a miserable time on it, but in the end product, you see it and you're like, wow, that really worked. Now did it really work because they were forced into a situation maybe they didn't want to be in or because they just wanted to get the hell out of there. Maybe, I don't know, but it still worked to great success for them that I don't think has been reached by many other by any other two people on screen together who are really working together for something that's bigger than just them. Uh, so I think that's where we, probably should start talking about this film is them as the actors and how their perform and how their performances work within such a rich screenplay especially the dialogue which is just again just oozes out of everywhere it's so good definitely i think you have to start with the difference of their characters and with the opening of the film it's definitely the coldest opening um, of any film that we've seen so far and when i say cold opening it's basically you know, there's no exposition or there's not even like an establishment sh- establishing shot to kind of set up where we are, what's going on. And you really just jump into uh, Colbert's life, who's really just uh, this kind of rich, you know, high mannered, high class person who just doesn't want to be stuck in the same kind of rhythm anymore and wants to break free from this life and be really truly independent. Um, and that is so opposing to Clark Gable's point of view uh, or Peter as his character's name and his uh, profession is a writer, a, a newsie. I don't want to say a, newsie. He's a he's a reporter. He's a news reporter. 
So with that profession, you have someone who's kind of uh, more on the ground, who's more, uh, you know, a people person who's working hand in hand with people to get a good story. He's like a, a really good uh, people pleaser and he knows how to, what to say and he's sleuthy, almost like James Bond is. Like he's a really good uh, player, essentially, who knows how to play the game. And he's so different from Colbert's character, who's just had basically been giving it everything in her life um, from what we've kind of established in the opening scene. Um, so with that, how do you feel about the cold opening of the uh, the very beginning of the movie? Do you feel like it established Colbert's character enough to like continue forward? Well, for me, I, it's a little bit different for me because now I've seen the film three times uh, and each time I've loved it more. And so knowing more about uh, Ellie's character, you know, you, at the beginning, yeah, she seems bratty and she seems it's like, oh, well, this person, she her father's just trying to get her to do what's best for her but you're like well what's best for her is really kind of her doing her own thing so it's a very it is a very cold open because you are just like put right into the situation where she's arguing with her dad being like no like i'm gonna be with with king wesley and like you don't know any better than me and blah 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 uh and what and so what it so at first it does seem very like bratty and and high maintenance but then as you see the rest of the film unfold you realize she's just been misunderstood her whole life and even though like yeah she's been given everything her whole life she still values independence she still values who she is as a person uh which i think has never been actually uh it's never actually been like told to her like that that's a valuable thing until she's met peter until she's realized that like oh this guy can be his own thing like he even though he's the black sheep of his own family i feel like the black sheep of my own family and that's how we connect it's over that simple human bond uh, that you kind of see the realities of Ellie. And even though she's a brat and in this like very abrupt cold open, the film over time, it's kind of smooths that over. And then you realize like, Oh, she's kind of a chill person. She's really cool and kind of has her wits and had her batter. For me, it was so cold that it was very jarring at first, especially when I think of uh, cliches in films, when I think of like, a girl who's really bratty and wants to defy her father. It's usually a father who's um, overly protective or just kind of holding back his daughter in some way. Uh, but uh, her father, Walter Connolly, or played by Walter Connolly, is not that, though. He's just like a very loving father who wants his daughter to be happy, and he's trying to deny this marriage that she wants to have with King Wesley because he just doesn't think it's right. So immediately I was just like blown away because I was expecting a father figure who would be just so much more aggressive and mean, especially based in this time in 1934. So that alone was like really shocking. And then she literally and figuratively jumps ship (laughs) from her life and the boat. And that really just kicks the movie started. And it's definitely really intriguing, even though if I don't fully buy what's going on because they don't really give us that much time. Um, but it's really investing and it really dives you right into the movie. Yeah. And, and when you're talking about her like father, like not being mean to her, like he slaps her in, in this scene because she's being a little, she's being defiant towards him Yeah, and he slaps her and, and, and they're both taken aback. And that's when she like runs away and jumps ship yeah. is because, you know, she feels betrayed and he feels like, well, I did something wrong that I normally would not mm-hmm. have done. Um, and, and so you have that, you know, going on and the dialogue again, I can't talk enough about this dialogue. It's so good. I just want to read this like simple back and forth. So Ellie says, you've been telling me what not to do ever since I can remember. And her father goes, that's because you've always been a stubborn idiot. And Ellie immediately, this is immediately just clips back. I come from a long line of stubborn idiots. And and it's that kind of like dialogue. That's just quick. It's natural. And it gets to the point that this, uh, this movie does so perfectly. 
So that's just like the first instance of where the dialogue really just brought me right in, even though we're kind of just dropped into this like cold open that we don't know who these characters are. We know nothing about them. We don't know where the story is going to go, but we're already given a, we're already given drama. We're already given uh, violence and the slapping of her. We're already given betrayal. We're given love because they do, there is a love between them and we get really great, funny dialogue. So it hits five boxes already that you're like, Oh, strap me in. Let's keep going. Yeah, it's really compelling. Yeah, when I said it, it wasn't that uh, the father is mean, I mean, he does hit her and it's very aggressive and that is mean in its own way, but it's not the stereotypical mean where he's being... He like, cares about her. It, yeah, it's he, not... Yeah, it, exactly. He, he cares about her and it and it's coming... It's a tough love situation. It's not, not being mean. It's just giving some tough love that sometimes we all need. Yeah, whether you agree with hitting your child or not. Yeah, he's trying to help yeah. her is what he's trying to do. Well, for 34, hitting your child was like nothing. <laughs> yeah, that, that was normal. Normal circumstance. But don't show your leg on the side of the road <laughs> no. because that is not normal. <laughs> um, so yeah, jumping back into their chemistry... I love Clark Gable's performance, and I think that is really what sells the film for me the most. It's so subtle, yet so on your nose because of this the script, like you were talking about, um, written by Robert Riskin. It's so fast, and it's so witty, and it's so nonstop, and it doesn't feel like a film that's literally 80 years old, 80 or more years old. Like It's so funny, and the characters are nonstop, and... It feels like an Aaron Sorkin script almost, yeah. you know, everyone talks about Aaron Sorkin having these like really witty, quick witted characters who are just like so funny yet so intelligent. And all of them sound really similar. It's got that same kind of bravado back and forth together. And I think Clark Gable like defines that kind of voice throughout the entire film. And I just love his performance. Yeah. And I think like what makes like guys like uh, Aaron Sorkin or like Tarantino uh, or even Scorsese, like they choose stories and 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 they use dialogue that's engaging but also there doesn't mean that nothing is like nothing is really happening in sometimes in those scenes you know it can just be like nothing dialogue and it happened one night and it works so well and one of those examples is when uh peter is showing ellie how to properly duck dunk a donut <laughs> into her cup of coffee she soaks it and he's like he's like no you can't do it like that you gotta just like quickly you know dunk it in and and it's just like this like two minute dialogue of back and forth where they're just talking about dunking donuts into coffee that you're like, well, that was like one of the best scenes I've ever seen. I love that scene. That scene is so engaging and endearing. Um, it's so funny to see them like bitter, like be kind of like bitter and argue with each other, especially when we have later on, like the, uh, you know, when they act as like a married couple, when they're kind of trying to hide um, as Ellie's father is essentially hunting, trying to find where she's gone because he doesn't know where his daughter went. She's literally lost in the, the U.S. since she jumped off the ship in Florida. So he's chasing after her, and they're kind of constantly trying to evade uh, being caught. And that's kind of, if you were listening to the description of the overall plot, it is, it's a little thin because a lot of this film is just the characters getting to know each other, getting to um, escape from a situation here and there, but then, you know, being stuck on a bus or they're meeting other characters and you get like a bigger picture from Cam uh, Frank Capra of just the United States and how he wants to show humanity in America and uh, the joy and the small things that kind of add up to the overall picture. Uh, while this film is very fun, lighthearted and sweet and endearing, it is set in the backdrop of the depression still, and it's still known uh, as the characters go throughout the film that they are in a depression. And again, when we compare this film to some of the other films, it's so reliant on the rich versus the poor and the kind of dynamic between those two aspects of life. And 
how they can pair, but also how they can trash and how they can contrast and also how they can kind of come together and uh, learn from one each other. Yeah. And I think when we're talking about, you know, social class and um, I almost said socialism, but that's a totally different thing <laughs> than what we're talking about. Yeah. So social class and social structure uh, is very important within this film. And where we have in previous Best Picture winners, it's, it's certainly more of the upper classes um, perception and the way they look on a lot of the events of the film and not really the lower class. But in this film, it it's mostly from the lower class's perspective, even though we have Ellie, who's from the upper class. But one, she's like, well, that's not really me. You know, just because I was born into money and just because I was given anything I wanted when I was growing up, that's not who I truly want to be. And and we can side that conversation for, for a little bit later because I think that is important to talk about. But we're talking about social structure. You know, Peter comes from, he's fighting his whole entire life. There is constant struggle from a lot of the other side characters in the film. It's backdropped within, you know, they are traveling mostly on a bus until they have to fight for that Model T towards the, you know, the end uh, or towards the middle of the second half of the film. So this ideas of social uh, classes clashing with each other is a big deal within the narrative of the film. Yeah, the bus is a huge character in this film. Not yeah. only is it just a, a setting, setting, but it's a, yeah. it's a huge setting and a huge prop and character throughout the entire film. And it plays on both of their sides because Peter is like so used to using the bus probably because of reporting and just, you know, being on the street and uh, working. But on the other hand, Colbert's character, Ellie, just is so unfamiliar with the buses, how the bus schedule works. At one point, she she misses her bus and they think they're going to hold it for her. Like, she's like, oh, I'll be back in like an hour. Like, you'll hold the bus for me, right? And of, clearly oh, yeah. they will not. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's just a fun like realization from her point of view. And that adds to the film so much. And while it's it can be on the nose here and there between like their class differences, it's it becomes more and more subtle throughout the film as they kind of like blend and they learn from one another. And it's definitely the best part of the whole film. The the dialogue and the connection between the two actors and um, that is so heavily played up between their their kind of different backgrounds i just i loved it and starting off in the very beginning when they meet each other at the bus station i love just how oblivious she is of what's going around she like doesn't really know the social etiquette because she's probably been just given everything most of her life and told exactly what to do here and there so when she's on the bus and clark gable clearly knows who she is and he's like you can tell that he's being professional and trying to do his job, but he's also clearly interested in her. And you can tell that's how good his acting is. You can tell that he's like finds her attractive immediately and it's not gaudy and they're not using like his point of view to like objectify her and just look her up and down with the camera. It's not, you can just totally tell that he's very interested in her and not from like only a professional standpoint, but also personally he is interested in her behavior and her attitude towards the world. Yeah, she. There's definitely an instant uh, chemistry and attraction between the two, and the bus is the kind of the perfect place to ha- like jumpstart it for them. Uh, so it's kind of jumpstarted when Peter is like fighting for this like seat in the back, and even that's like an amazing, you know, quick back and forth with him and the bus driver because Peter throws out a bunch of newspapers and I like we could I could digress, but anyways, so she comes onto the bus and sort of steals the seat, and he's like you know basically accusing her of like being a brat being like that's my seat like i fought for it and then she's like no like it's first comes first serve and then he's like well it's a two-person seat so they kind of squeeze in with each other but that's also where the attraction starts um for them because 
because then the next morning she like wakes up and she's like leaning up against him and like is holding his jacket collar which is also against sexually suggestive that she's you know sleeping with this man that she but who she's not married to and they're unmarried anyways and so it all comes back into this like very perfect line when she misses the bus the next day and and peter's there waiting for her because he knows the bus wasn't going to wait for her and he goes good morning remember me i'm the fellow you slept on last night which is just (laughs) bang perfect like that's just great dialogue and like it's it's suggestive but also it's very funny and it adds to that screwball slash romantic comedy aspect of it yeah talking about their chemistry um it's funny to look and do research more on the film and look back at it when we talked about a previous winner like grand hotel which supposedly had a lot of drama behind the scenes between the actors uh, then later on to reveal that as the years passed by that that wasn't true it was essentially used to promote and push the movie to get people to go see those actors and to want to go see the film in general and for this film, it was actually the opposite. While there's so much chemistry and there's such a fun attitude between the two, supposedly uh, Colbert and Clark Gable were not happy to be there. In fact, Colbert was not their fo- first choice for the lead. Colbert only agreed to be in this film specifically under the guideline that she wanted to be back for her Christmas skiing trip and that she would be paid $50,000 which was twice her normal salary and close to a million dollars today. And looking back on the budget, which was only 350000 So it was a huge get for her. And yeah, and even on the other side with Clark Gable, he was given out to Columbia and essentially loaned out for the time being, almost as a punishment for some scandalous behavior behind the scenes. And supposedly looking back and for all records sake, it seems that both actors didn't want to be there. A lot of the crew thought... They didn't really understand the movie that they were trying to make. I think looking back at the other Oscar winners and probably a lot of the films around this time, there wasn't something as lighthearted and goofy and silly, but also self-serious about their their relationship. And it was probably kind of jarring for these two actors to see. And they probably looked at it as this kind of trash film that wouldn't go anywhere. Uh, and it obviously surprised them when it was not only very popular, but also brought in the awards. Yeah, and I think that actually speaks to a lot of what the film is about and and what it and what it represents where it's like these two people coming from completely opposite backgrounds are able to come together, they fall in love and even though that's very like mushy and and, and very just like oh that's so typical Hollywood, but it hits on so many different subject matters. The it the again we're going to talk like the acting is just so good the direction is great and the theme the, the thematic elements of it really just hit on you know the head of like how influential that this film is and how it is able to talk about those like deep meanings that we were seeing in the previous films whereas in this one it is a screwball comedy it's like how does this work like where is the lightheartedness really talk about these issues but in fact it really does a much better job than some other ones because you know in a movie like all quiet on the western front which is all about you know the horrors of war it's pretty obvious after the first battle scene like oh yeah war is bad and you're hit, hit on the head with that for another two hours whereas this it's like oh well they're talking about sexuality but they're also talking about gender roles and they're also talking about you know just domestic violence and then donut dunking I, like it doesn't like make any sense but the lightheartedness works to elevate the story and its messages and what it ultimately ultimately becomes which is the best picture winner 
So Frank Capra really tries to encapsulate like what America could be for him. And for me, uh, I think he does that perfectly in, I call the uh, man on the flying trapeze scene, which I, which I, I still, which my first time when I watched this film and, and the other two times I watched it after is still my favorite scene. I don't know if you have any initial feelings about that scene. Uh, I, I enjoyed it a lot. It's, you know, those scenes where a lot of characters just begin seeing together in a mass group can be, um, frankly, just irritating and annoying. But this is done so well where it's it's a song that kind of references the world and the characters. And it, it paints a overall larger picture of the world that both of these characters, Ellie and Peter, are in. So I think it adds a lot to the film and it adds not only from that overall setting, but it adds to their relationship. It's a pivotal point in their relationship where they kind of connect and they like start to see that they're similar. And I think singing and something like singing really kind of brings you down on, on the same level. Yeah. uh, No matter what kind of wealth class you're in. Yeah. It's pretty amazing what the power of music can do, but that's for another podcast. Anyway. So this scene, uh, it really shows off Capro's like style and his artistry. Uh, And for me, he's trying to talk about the simplicity of American life and bringing people together. And one of the ways that's sort of done is through this like folk song called The Man on the Flying Trapeze. And, you know, you typically think of like a folk song being like that country can be like Bob Dylan type of song, which it may not be for everyone. But there's an importance to folk music because it tells stories. It tells these basic understandings of life, of of culture that is then seen through other aspects and this film, I think, does the same exact thing, where it's a folk film that influences culture and sets up a lot of basic necessities for other films that come after it to kind of base itself off of and progress forward. And so outside of like the scene being a very folky-esque thing, it has some really interesting elements to it. So one of the first things that immediately jumps out to me when watching the scene is that it's uh, a bus full of just white people singing happy and like dandy, like nothing else is going on, which I think speaks to the pre 2015 democratic view of American life of how like, Oh yeah, everything is just fine and dandy when we should have realized at a bigger scale that things aren't as fine and dandy, which is kind of seen in the, in this scene. And then also it's also representation of Peter as a character in, in Clark Gable and I think that's seen perfectly in the chorus of the song. And it goes like this. Oh, he floats through the air with the greatest of ease. This daring young man on the flying trapeze. His actions are graceful. All girls he does please. My love he has stolen away. And I think that kind of works perfectly with Peter's character. Because it's this man who's kind of really is like a trapeze artist. Just finding that fine balance of life. And flying through the air. And, and, and taking these risks. And, and being this news reporter. This guy who is going to... to do whatever he can to survive, to to jump without any safety net, because that's just who he is. And even though this song kind of praises more of Peter, I think you kind of then relate that back to Ellie, where she's trying to be that person, where she's trying to break free, free and you know, where she's trying to be this graceful person. And and even though it's not all the girls she's trying to please, she's trying just to please anyone who would just love her simply as the person that she is, as a free, you know, flowing person. So. I just love that scene a lot, and I think there's a lot to take out of it. Um, that, so that's what I took out of it. We mentioned this scene a little bit earlier, but another scene that I love in the film is when Ellie and Peter are hiding away. Uh, they've rented a, a house. Or oh, yeah. They have a, um, 
motel that they've rented out and uh, essentially some of the men that are looking and investigating trying to find Ellie um, sent by her father uh, break in and they have to pretend that they're essentially a married couple and this is the moment in the film where they kind of sync so well together and it's a key point where the the script works so well and they are so funny as this married couple and they're screaming and yelling and it's so dynamic and it's so fresh and even a scene uh, in 2020 that would replicate this even almost word to word it would still work it would still be so funny and it's just a fun dynamic that the characters have that just plays off of how well their chemistry is even as two different characters as acting inside of an actor it works so well and it's so funny what do you think about that scene yeah i love that scene a a ton uh because yeah it does perfectly place them well you know together uh, and this is coming right off the heels of the donut dunking scene. So already we were getting like, okay, that attraction is there. There's that chemistry that's there. And then they're forced into a situation where they have to pretend that they are this married couple because they're trying to hide from people and they have to be quick. They have to be right on their feet. And yeah, you can attribute that mostly to the script and the dialogue that is created out of it. But it ta- it it does so much. Like the back and forth is honestly amazing because they kind of take this screwball aspect of them having to be on the run they have this detective who comes in you know out of nowhere trying to find them and they're like okay well quick well we have to pretend to be a married couple who's fighting and then we go and we just go keep on going back and forth at each other to kind of make it seem like it's this craziness that's happening and that the detective doesn't want to be a part of and it works out greatly and so a few things about that so one is the right before when they're talking about you know dunking the donuts uh, Ellie says this line, oh, I'd rather change places with a plumber's daughter any day, saying she'd rather be just a common person. And literally like a minute or two later, Peter uses this this line. He goes, oh, nuts. You're just like your old man. Once a plumber's daughter, always a plumber's daughter. <laughs> and I think like, yeah, that's like really just smart dialogue and just like kind of as a writer, like hearkening back and, and taking the character development. But what you could also look at that as is that that's just Peter and Ellie's characters and how their chemistry works together. And that was picked up by Clark Abel and Claudia Cabert because they were able to pick up on that. They're going to use the same tones and inflections or the same meanings behind what Ellie had said before. And Peter's going to take that and turn it right back around to use into this quick scene where they're trying to escape. And I think it's just smart and and works extremely well for that scene where they're, they have to be on their feet, um, you know, thinking quickly trying to get out of whatever the detective is trying to do. But the scene ends on probably the mo- another extremely sexually suggestive thing, which is in, which is Clark Gable buttoning up uh, Claudette Cabrera's blouse instead of taking it off, which would you would see in any other movie, but he's buttoning it up saying to her how great of a job she just did with thinking on her feet with playing along with him. And even though that's him just being nice to her, the sexuality is just like so tense right there. I oh was, yeah, yeah. I was like, "Is like did the room? Did the heat in the room just go up, or is that just me?" Like it was like really one of those situations where as you like watching him button up her blast, you're like, "Oh my god!" You're like, "Give me some air for a second. <laughs> yeah, it's the film is filled with suggestive sexuality. Is what I'll call it. It's it makes things. I think when a lot of people talk about this, they talk about Psycho and they talk about Hitchcock because that film was so heavily censored to to make it into the theater, and it was kind of cut down and by not showing certain aspects of the killing, it makes the killing almost worse and more graphic, you know, and it works the same way within happen one night by not showing the direct sexuality. They don't kiss in this film at all. Even though this whole film is about sexuality and, and gender roles. And there's no like direct 
anything close to sexual or actual on-screen sex, there is such a heavy reliance on sexuality. And by hinting and suggesting towards it, it almost just like constantly reminds you that it's there. And it's constantly like, oh my God, like, will they, won't they? It's like the classic, will they, won't they in a romantic comedy, but it works so well because they refuse to like give you an inch. You know, it's like when you see someone buttoning up someone's dress, it's like you think suggestively like, oh, it's post-sex. Like they just had sex and they're like helping each other get back together. Um, it's just works so well and it's so in your face, but like so subtle at the same time. It's, I love it. Would you say that, uh, to kind of go off the rail a little bit, would you say that that scene is a actor's like sex where they, where two people are able to gel and, and create this chemistry so well and effectively that what you're saying about, even though it's him butting up her blouse, like that's suggestive in the sense that these two characters just meshed well together and they're they did the act, which was them acting together. But then he's buttoning up the blouse to just complete the scene. Uh, I don't know. I'm just trying to throw a curveball at you. Like, do you think that could be like a way to interpret sex for just the actors acting? Well, yeah, definitely. I think there's uh, a relationship that actors have where they kind of love the aspect of breaking into another character within their own character. So yeah. you have not only that aspect, but you have just like you said, the aspect of they came together and they meshed so well that it's almost like their two characters are forgetting who they were and they like got so lost in the characters that they just become or just became to kind of like present them to the detectives. So they wouldn't know who they are that they're just, they almost fell for each other in, in a tiny little bit there that they're kind of like not even thinking about him suggestively like buttoning up her dress. It's just because, you know, they've connected so well that they're just one essentially yeah. at this point. In the it's film. like two people, one mind. Yeah, yeah exactly. It, it, it's so quick and it, and it, it works well, and, and you know we talked about how they didn't work off screen well together, but on screen it worked perfectly. And you also talked about how there was no kissing between uh, Peter and Ellie shown at all. In fact, we actually do see a kiss between Ellie and King Wesley at the end when she comes back to him, and that feels so weird and <laughs> off, you know, to look at. So for you and. And for anyone who might love romantic comedies, like especially today, like we are just given tons of of kissing of well, today in 2020, romantic comedies probably have more sex than ever before, um, especially really showing it you know, yeah. Game of Thrones style. almost. Yeah. But in this film, we don't get that. So f- for me, you know, I actually think it's really creative to work around that to not show the sex, to not show the kissing, to show them just as characters. Whereas today in a rom-com, the kissing and, and all the touching and, and all that is almost like just too easy to do. Like, what do you think about that? Oh, it definitely is too easy. I mean, even when you first introduced to Ellie and Peter's character, when they kind of like gently touch her, she falls asleep on him. Like if I were to see that in a scene nowadays, it just wouldn't feel the same. No. Uh, it doesn't matter like what kind of chemistry two other actors have. It's it's at this point a cliche that's just been so like driven into the ground. Like two yeah. two characters touching hands by accident, and, like looking at each other. It's like laughable at this point. And I think this film like helped define those uh you know Joe's genre cliches in a romantic comedy. It really helped define the kind of will they won't they that dynamic of uh you wanting them to come together, maybe being on the male's point of view or the, the female's point of view of the, of the entire film and their perspective, it defines those expectations that you expect from a rom-com. So yeah, it's hard to like watch a film after this with those you know, specific moments. Yeah. And, and the slow burn that you get out of this film, 
it, again, like it pays off so well, not even seeing any of it, but it pays off well because you get so many other great things out of it. You get to see, you know, the, the two of them engage in dialogue that can be totally nonsensical or could be totally right on point. Um, you get to know them just as people as well, which is really nice to see. You get to see them interact within a world that in, in mostly in other like romantic comedies, like it depends on the romantic comedy, but I feel like most of them don't interact with the world too much that it's kind of just there as the backdrop and you're just focused on the two characters and they fall in love and, and blah, 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 blah. And like to get married maybe and towards the end of it in the middle. But in this movie, it's about, you know, Ellie having to leave someone for someone else. And you don't get to see that on screen at all. You don't see that kind of sadness that comes out of that, but you get to see the happiness that, that she has this true happiness that she finally has with Peter which he hadn't gotten before because for her, the marriage to King Wesley was just a defiant moment with Peter. It's a, this is who I am. This is me kind of uh, thing. So I think it's interesting that like, it's, you know, there's all this sexuality that, that comes out of it. There's all, you know, this, this love and, and this is the, the template for romantic comedies, but this doesn't have the typical physical romantic comedy aspects that you're looking for out of a film which can be disappointing for a lot of people. But for me, I think it's a creative workaround that Frank Capra just, again, knocks right out of the park with it. So I, we have to specifically stop and talk about the walls of Jericho because oh, it's yeah. such a specific and important integral part of the film that kind of threads you throughout the entire story. And you may hear walls of Jericho and think of WWE. And, <laughs> I was just about to say, is that Chris what you're Jericho's <laughs> awesome abs as he does the wall of Jericho, which is, is that a, sexual. <laughs> oh, that's so sexual. That's so hot. That's hotter than anything in this movie. Um, but the walls of Jericho essentially much like the studio that we're recording in uh, a long wire goes across the room or the motel that they're in. And they essentially just put up a, sheet or a kind of blanket over it dividing the two beds in half um, that way they can get dressed and feel comfortable there are rumors i don't know if this is specifically true or what happened um, with uh, colbert was like not really down to show much of her body so this may have come from frank capra's suggestion of like putting up a curtain to divide the room so she could get dressed or undressed or um, prepare for like a certain scene um, but it made its way into the film and it works as again building that sexual tension and the will they won't they aspect of the film um, but it also creates like an amazing visual aesthetic to the film where it shows how like completely contrasted and separated they are from each other yet that kind of like yearning of wanting to kind of break through that blanket or cross that blanket yeah exactly and so the first i would say with the first scene you see that contrast so well so you have Ellie on the left side of the room. You have Peter on the right side of the room and each of them have a window uh, that kind of lights up like their bed uh, for, for the room for that night. And Ellie's window, uh, I don't know if you picked up on this, her window light is wide open. It's as wide as it can go. Whereas Peter's is closed a little. And to me that said a lot about their, their social structure. Whereas Ellie has this like wide open life where Peter, his like literal window is closing. Like he has had a lot of opportunities to prove himself in the beginning of the film. We're kind of thrown into his life where he just got fired from his reporting job. There's some reference to him being an alcoholic or have some, having some kind of alcohol problems that could have led to that. But yeah, the walls of Jericho is separates them a lot. And then at, and where it 
that divider then kind of falls down to you know outside of just the ending scene when it you you see the blanket fall down on the ground the scene where ellie sort of like reveals her love to peter she comes around the wall and she you know she tells him like you know that she is in love with him and so she's breaking she's breaking that wall uh to, to do this and, and it works effectively but to go back to the first scene where we set up this like sexual uh suggestiveness and and what it does create is peter undressing himself which ellie does watch and this is probably like a very interesting scene to watch um I, I will read the dialogue to you now, but I will not strip out in front of John because... Oh, please do. <laughs> I won't do that. So Peter, he's starting to undress in front of Ellie after he says they, they're going to get ready for bed. And so this is what he says. Perhaps you're interested in how a man undresses. You know, it's a funny thing about that. Quite a study in psychology. No two men do it alike. You know, I once knew a man who kept his hat on until he was completely undressed. Yet now he made a picture. Years later, his secret came out. He wore a toupee. Yeah, you know, I have a method all my own. If you notice, the coat comes first, then the tie, then the shirt. Now, uh, according to Hoyle after that, the uh, pants should be next. That's where I'm different. I go for the shoes next. First the right, then the left. After that, it's uh, every man for himself. And as he's about to start unbuttoning his pants, Ellie just (laughs) zips right by and goes to the other side of the walls of Jericho. Uh, So first... First things first is that you get to see a nice bare-chested Clark Gable, which was a big no-no for the time. And supposedly there's no actual proof of this, but supposedly that limited or brought down the sales of undershirts in 1934 because every man in America was like, well, I don't need to wear an undershirt uh, in that scene. Um, Supposedly Frank Capper did that because uh, Clark Gable was having a tough time taking off his shirt for that specific moment. But anyways, um, so it brings back that sexual suggestiveness because... Again, like Peter's undressing in front of Ellie. He's kind of being like, well, I'm this kind of man and this is what I do. And not saying like he is not confident in his masculinity. He clearly is. But he's just kind of suggests like, this is who I am. This is me. You better get with it or you're going to be against it. And this is going to be a tough time trying to get you back to King Wesley. Yeah, I think that scene shows specifically how good the writing is. Because it's him telling you, what kind of person he is it's really funny it's almost suggestive to the audience in a way where it's like you've never seen this before like you've never seen a guy talking about his body and sexuality in this kind of way even though it's as basic and bare bones as just him undressing well you haven't seen it before in 1934 yes at the time you haven't seen it before as an audience member um but it's it's so suggestive without fully showing anything other than like a bare chest and it's almost directly saying to the audience like the, be prepared for the rest of this movie like this whole movie is really about sexuality and gender roles and and kind of defying them and showing you something that's never been seen before in 1934 yeah it, it's it's incredibly interesting and it it's fun to watch and it adds more to that sexual uh suggestiveness so as we're probably through uh, three quarters of the way through this episode i wanted to ask you now john where do you feel or how did you feel when you were halfway or three quarters away from the movie about the two characters? How did you feel about Peter and Ellie before, I guess, before Ellie reveals that she does love Peter? Did you see a change in their characters? Did you think that, oh, yeah, they're going to end up together? Or was there some doubt that maybe they won't? There's definitely always the thought of they they won't. Obviously, you're you're coming to the film knowing that it's kind of a romantic comedy. So you're, there's kind of that thought in the back of your head where it's 
you know, they're going to come together and you hope for that because you are seeing how good of chemistry they're having. And you definitely see them changing more and more. I mean, at this point in the film, um, Peter's character is still really closed off. And it's, I think, maybe an allegory partially with the windows that you're talking about is he's definitely more closed off as a person. There's the scene where they have the dunking donuts and that's a point where Ellie really opens up and kind of you can see her starting to fall for him and that she's definitely romantic but he's still reserved and we haven't talked too much about Peter's job but while though he's fired he is using Ellie throughout most of the film as not only her kind of guardian to carry, carry her all the way to King Wesley but also as a story he's using her and saying this is going to be my story I'm not going to tell your dad but you know you're going to be you're giving me the best story I could ever write it's going to get my job back everyone's going to love me again so at this point in the film I'm way more interested in Peter's character Um, I like Ellie's kind of like defiance but I don't really understand why she wants to even be with King Wesley it's to me it's not really well defined enough that might be because of how quick this film was uh, uh, made and supposedly it only took four weeks for them to shoot it and it was really fast. And at times it feels that way in the film where it feels like some scenes are not directly tied to each other. They almost feel like kind of bits or they thought of a certain funny element to a scene and they kind of base the characters around that. The, the chemistry and the way the characters work together and their dynamic makes me forget about all those uh, inconsistencies and I just love their relationship and I'm like rooting for them to be a couple <laughs> by this point so much. Yeah, yeah, I, I was too. And I think I'm, I think I, I, I'm struggling the opposite way where I do get Ellie and I do understand, you know, where she is coming from. And I, um, I, I just, I feel for her because it's just at a human level. She's just trying to say like, look, like I'm different than what your preconceived notions may be of the upper class. Um, she says this to Peter. She goes, you think I'm a fool and a spoiled brat? Well, perhaps I am. Although I don't see how I can be people who are spoiled are accustomed to having their own way. I never have on the contrary. I've always been told what to do and how to do it and when and with whom would you believe it? This is the first time I've ever been alone with a man. It's a wonder I'm not panic stricken nurses, governesses, chaperones, even bodyguards. Oh, it's been a lot of fun. And so for her, it's this like, she's like finally able just to be who she is. And she's finally able to be who she is around Peter. And like, yeah, she like did this like big thing to like go run off and marry King Wesley. But she didn't like really spend that much time with him. And what I can imagine, because we don't get to see it, is that she probably just met this like King Wesley at like some like big party down in Florida. And was like, I'm going to marry you. And then two days later that they probably did. And then that's when her father found out and tried to get to be annulled. And then that's when she ran away. So she didn't have like time to think about it, but now that she's having time and having these moments to really understand who Peter is and who she is and how she like fits in with this like world now, and you can say it's the world of the lower class, which probably what Capra was trying to talk about with her, but she finally is just like, no, like I'm this person, I'm not this brat. Like, yeah, I have bratty attitudes sometimes because that's how I was raised, but don't let that be your judgment on who I am totally as a person. That's just like who I was, but I can be someone different. Um, so that's where I, I feel, I feel the most attracted towards Ellie, um, just because I feel like there's a lot of good in her and with Peter there's a lot of good himself. And I think this, what Peter stands like, what makes him stand out so well is Clark Gable because Clark Gable outside of at the time being called the King of Hollywood, he was just like, it's just a great character. And, but it's very, a typical like male role. Whereas Ellie, it's like, oh, it's this very typical female stereotype of like the high class socialite but she's actually being like no i'm not that i'm, I'm something else and i you need to recognize that 
Yeah, I think that's what makes both of their characters so interesting because it's Peter trying to, you know, come up and learn more about himself. Like, he's very standoffish, and I think that's kind of his, his main, like, moral of the story is to, like, open himself up more. And while he's very open about very particular things, he's very close-guarded. And I think you see that really clearly when Ellie is so fully in love with him at this point, and they're again staying at another motel, and she kind of confesses her love to each other and breaks through the the walls of Jericho, like you said, and he is just doesn't give her much. Like he's not saying, no, I'm not in love with you or I'm not madly in love with you. He's just kind of quiet and he just needs like time to think about it and like to fully process what's going on. Like he can be as fast and witty as possible, but it almost feels like some of his character love. Yeah. I mean, it feels like some of his character, he's saying these things to like hide from his true feelings. Like he's saying it to like block himself a lot. Yeah. I mean, he, he rejects her at first and I keep on saying all these like quotes and dialogue, but that's just like how good it is. Uh, so in the, I call this the last lap scene because it's like the last lap of when they're, when he's finally going to get her home, they're like three hours. Yeah. Yeah, He's like, they're three hours away. And, uh, and so you can already sense like Peter's like disappointed because he's like, he's like very, um, uh, he like puts her off in a way. He's like, you know, she's like, well, will you hang out with me almost like when we get back? And he's like, no, I won't be running around with a married woman. Cause he's like disappointed that he can't have her. But Allie asks this. She goes, have you ever been in love, Peter? Peter goes, me? Yeah, have you ever thought about it at all? Seems to me you can make some girl wonderfully happy. And Peter says this. Sure, I've thought about it. Who hasn't? I never met the right sort of girl. Oh, where are you going to find her? Somebody that's real. Somebody that's alive. They don't come that way anymore. I never thought about it. I've even been suckered enough to make plans. I saw an island in the Pacific once. I've never been able to forget it. That's where I'd like to take her. She'd have to be the, the sort of girl who jump in the surf with me and love it as much as I did. Nights when you and the moon and the water all become one. You feel you're part of something big and marvelous. That's the only place to live. The stars are so close over your head, you feel you can reach up and stir them around. Certainly, I've been thinking about it. Boy, if I could ever find a girl who was hungry for those things. And that's when Ellie comes around the walls of Jericho and she says, take me with you, Peter. Take me to your island. I want to do all those things you talked about. And Peter is like, it's like, you know, like we can't do that. Like you, you got to go back to bed and like he rejects her and she's like, she's like, I love you. Nothing else matters. We can run away. And she's like, and he's like, no, 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 no. Like you, like this isn't going to work. And she's like so upset and she's, you know, she says she's sorry. And she, then she cries herself to sleep. And that's when Peter, after she's like already fallen asleep, he goes, Hey brat, did you mean that? Would you really go? And it's like, so yeah, so it takes him a second to like realize this, that he has like this like woman there the whole time where she's like, I realized that I like that's what I want and like I found him that how do I get him to understand like that's that you're who I want to be with and like you're like I want to be that girl for you I want to do these adventures with you because that's what she's been dying to do her whole life is to be this adventurous person and she finally found someone that will do it with her yeah I found it really compelling because it wasn't that you cut characters coming together and being instantly like yes like we're united we're together um, it was him still just trying to process his emotions. And I met a lot of people like that and good friends of mine and their relationships me included, <laughs> I gotta say that, just me included. And in their relationships, they just, they say one thing and they really are trying to say something else, but something, you know, instead comes out because it's like a, a defense mechanism or it's them trying to like say something to like hurt the other person, but they're really just trying to like somehow find their feelings and find the right path to get to what they're trying to say. And I think he does figure it out overnight and it causes um, a drama between the two because Peter leaves at night because he just he decides that 
she is worth more than my career. She is worth more than the reward money or whatever it may be. And he leaves and basically goes to his uh, news editor, the editor of the paper, and says, there is a better story that you could ever imagine. This is the best story of the year. I have found her. Uh, I found Ellie, and I'm the one who's going to marry her. And it's not going to be King Wesley or anyone but me. And because he leaves at night, Ellie wakes up in the middle of the night and notices that he's gone. And this kind of like breaks her down. She thinks that's him rejecting her, even though it's him trying to like make sure that everything works for them, make sure that they have a future and make sure that uh, everything's going to be right for the two of them moving forward. And I love aspects in films like that when there's a misunderstanding between two characters and this is, you know, pretty bare bones. It's her just waking up and seeing an empty bed, but it works so well because there's so much tension. And from the audience point of view, there's so much tension because you know that he wants her at this point and she wants him, but she thinks one thing, but we know the opposite, right? There's that tension where you just want to put your hands on the screen and like shake Ellie and be like, don't leave. <laughs> like he's coming back. Like, you know, he's coming back. Well, like, especially when he's like driving back too, and you're just like, please just let like something just stop them. And mm-hmm. they're like these physics, like the train, like stopping them both at the I intersection. Shot, yeah. yeah. Cause you're like, Oh my God, like they're finally going to see each other. And then they don't. And, uh, Peter's just like literally deflated. And, uh, the actually car tire, I don't know if you remember this, the car tire that he's driving deflates. So that's like another like sexual suggestive thing where, yeah. Give me this rock hard guy just getting you know, <laughs> deflated. Deflated, yeah. like, like that's just like what this film is. It's just like a bunch of innuendos, but it, 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 you know, it works extremely well because you are rooting for them. At the end, of you're like, we want them to be together, and then like the last like ten minutes where it's like, wait, are they not going to be together? Like, did you feel like that they weren't going to be when? you know, when she's really about to get married. Yeah. It's hard to tell because at that point it's not as far into the movie that you would expect it to be. Like there's more time where she goes back with King Wesley and, and he basically assumes again from his point of view now that he thinks that she left him and she doesn't want him. And she was just lying to like make it all the way. So he's kind of given up. She's given up and goes back to King Wesley. And there's a lot longer time where they're together and you Still don't really get to know King Wesley that much. He's kind of just there to be um, a prop for her to marry and be opposing. We never man. actually see them like act together. No, not at all. Like you just see them remotely in, in a scene. Yeah. Um, but what I do love after this point is that Peter comes and meets with her father, Ellie's father directly. And you see more of how great of a, not only father he is, but he just cares so much about his daughter. Yeah. And it's about, he clearly knows that like she, he is the right run for her. And he just wants him to admit it. And I love the back and forth banter where he's just like, do you love my daughter? Do you love my daughter? And he just keeps it like avoiding the question. And he's like, yes, God damn it. <laughs> there's, like, su- there's such great dialogue in that scene, that back yeah. and forth, um, which I, again, like goes back to how great the script is because, because you're going to have, you have like mo- the most of the movie is just Peter and Ellie on screen together. It's really not many other characters that interact with each other. It's really those two, then Ellie and her father. So when you get Peter and Ellie's father interacting together, you get the beginning of a relationship that you can tell is going to last a, a very long time. Um, and you can see the immediate like, oh, wow, this guy is like completely different than what I would have wanted for her because he's an actual person and he actually does seem to care about her. He doesn't care about money. He just cares about the gas money that he had to pay to get her back up here. Like he doesn't give a shit about much else. Yeah, it's and, and it's interesting when we talk about a lot of the cliches in this film and you expect to see a lot of these moving forward and we do see the grand wedding and the coming together and you see her going to marry Kings Wesley and 
we see her leave the altar, which is, again, the first time this has ever happened in film history, but we don't really directly see them coming together. We both know at this point that they know who they want to be with. They've, like, made up their mind, but do you feel like it's not enough that we don't see Ellie and Peter finally again coming together after that? It's it's definitely disappointing. I'm not... Um... I'm not like totally though disappointed at the after watching it three times now. I'm not disappointed because I get to see so much else develop with them. But if initially watching, you're like, man, you didn't get to see really them as like a couple. You just saw them pre, you know, coupling, <laughs> pre coupling. Is that a word? Pre coupling. That's now a word. <laughs> uh, you know, pre coupling. You know, and 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 then and I think that's what like works really well, and that's what makes the the story in the movie just keep flowing and, and keep on to keep on going. And so yeah, so it's. You know, you're like, oh, man, I wish I could have seen them at least kiss. But, you know, the sexual suggestiveness is right there for you. You can just think about them kissing and like that. That's all you need. And like, that's what works well about this movie as a pre and we're tying tying it back to the pre-code era. Like, that's what works is because you got to talk about these things. You got to imply sexuality. You got to imply so many things, you know, that were was then shut down for like 40, 50 years. Um, just because people were like too sensitive and, and too soft to the idea that like you can't show that, but you can, and it, and it's honest and it's truthful. And that's what people just want to see is the honest and the truth. No, definitely. And I think a lot of the suggested sexuality that is so present is, it just makes the film so much better that they're not directly showing these things. And it's hard to tell whether there was a scene where they were coming together and, like we talked about a little bit earlier, that this film was only shot in four weeks, which is really fast for a full feature length film. And it could have been that a scene either didn't work or they didn't even have enough time to like actually film a scene where the two characters come together. I don't really think it matters because the ending works so well and it's so heavy handed the way they drop the walls of Jericho. So the entire film, we have the walls of Jericho set up like with a bed sheet. And as we read with the synopsis, the bedsheet finally drops at the very end, signifying that, like, they're officially a couple, they're together, and uh, they're going to have sex, which is, like, the very <laughs> end point to the film. So how did you feel about them ending on that point? Is it worth it? Is it... Oh, yeah. It sums it, it all together. It's, oh, yeah. It's extremely worth it. It's it's funny. It's funny that that's how it ends, is that the, the walls of Jericho topple, and they consummate the, the marriage, they consummate the relationship, you know, call it old fashioned, but that's just, you know, for how it was back then. And, and you know what, what you can imagine then is that the next morning they wake up and they get to do their adventures all over again. And like, that's what makes it such a great chemistry and a great couple on screen is that you can see the, the awkwardness, the, the connectivity, the, the, the raucous that they, that they cause, it's just going to happen every moment of their lives. And like, that's what, that's what, one, that's what Ellie's looking for is that adventure. And Peter's looking for the girl that's going to play along with him, but also calm him down and show him the love that he probably needed for a lot of his life. Yeah, someone who can say, no, you're wrong, and someone who's also just willing to like go and be open, uh, like you said, on any kind of adventure and always be free and and just really willing to do anything when, it, when you wake up one morning. And while it is just so bluntly as just putting the – the walls of Jericho down and having sex. It's way more than that because the entire film has essentially just been a tease of those two, yeah. which is kind of determining that's what they want to do. And it's, it's more than just sex, even though they're just portraying it as sex, it's finally them coming together and really just locking their relationship together. 
and it works so well. Even though you're not even seeing the two characters, you just see the bed sheet drop. It it says everything. It's showing, and it's not just telling you exactly what's happening. They don't need to show them having sex in this gratuitous scene for it to like feel right and romantic. In fact, that would probably hurt the film and make it just feel yeah. gaudy and gross. The way the film deals with the sexuality throughout is is so nuanced that it works and it makes the film funnier. So. Yeah, and it's even funnier because it's Ellie's dad who says, "Let him topple." He's like saying, "Go fuck my daughter." Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, like, essentially, and like, but that's what but, you know. But he knows it's right. Yeah, but and he's happy about that. He's a little drunk too, which we haven't even talked about alcohol in this film, which I don't think is even important just because of prohibition. But you know, Ellie's father is like extremely inebriated at the time, and he's just like, "Let him topple. Let them let them have sex. Like like have the fun you want." Because he's like, "I'm free now." to do what I want because like oh yeah I'm done with like parenting my daughter but I'm also like letting go of the control that I had over her for so long and we don't know if like her mother was involved we don't know if she was there all the time it's like never talked about but maybe you get an idea that her mother is out of the picture that she probably died when she was a young age so he's had to control her this whole time which maybe is why he was so controlling because he didn't want to lose her but he's like finally able to let her go and he's able to let himself go and he's happy you know it makes him a very happy man and that's what he says to her when he's walking her down the aisle. He's like, you would make a very old man happy as if you ran away right now and went off to Peter. Yeah, I, I love the relationship that she has with her father. It is, even to this day, it feels so subverting the expectation of a controlling father where he's trying to control her and does so definitely overbearingly, but is only trying to help her. And I just love that aspect because it's not something you see very often. So I think we went through the plot pretty well and hit yeah. a lot of the major points. Is there anything you want to like, touch on about uh it happened one night any other key moments and things here no I, I i think we hit everything that that needed to be talked about with this film and there's so much more to be talked about because it's just so rich but um i think we should definitely talk about some of the other uh greatness that this film did achieve as an oscar winner The 7th Academy Awards were held on February 27th, 1935, and honored the best in films from 1934. The event took place at the Biltmore Hotel in Los Angeles, California, and was hosted by Irvin S. Cobb. This was the first year that the Academy decided to match the eligibility period to the calendar year. From now on, the nomination selections in the award ceremony would cover the same calendar year. Three new categories were added, film editing, song, and scoring. And you'll also see the addition of the Academy Juvenile Award. The Academy would also allow writing candidates for all categories after members denounce the omission of Betty Davis in Of Human Bondage for Best Actress. Writing candidates were disallowed after 1935, only a year later. Best Assistant Director went to John S. Waters for Viva Villa. Uh, Quick note about this category. It was whittled down to only three nominees, whereas the year before it was 18 nominees, which we'll never see again and this award won't be around for much longer after this best film editing goes to eskimo conrad a nervig this is the first winner of the category for best film editing for best cinematography that went to victor milner for cleopatra uh, which is a cecil b demille uh, film and he was pretty much notably unrecognized until 
way late in his career and for the film that he was ultimately recognized for, it was not a very good movie. Uh, but that's for a 20 episodes down the line <laughs> for Worthy. 20 episodes-ish. Best Art Direction goes to Cedric Gibbons and Frederick Hope for The Merry Widow. So Cedric Gibbons, uh, this is the second award out of 11 wins for Best Art Direction, which is the most in this category. So he's won, he won 11 times for Best Art Direction. And he's never really talked about, which I think just plays more to the fact that a lot of behind-the-scenes people aren't talked about in Hollywood filmmaking. But I digress, and we move on. Best Sound Recording went to One Night of Love to John P. Lividary. Uh, and this was recognized for its use of vertical cut recording, which at the time was pretty revolutionary. Um, and it also received a scientific and technical award for that achievement. Vertical cut recording was essentially a more detailed and precise way to add a, a track into a piece of vinyl, much so you would see, much like what you would see in a phonograph cylinder uh, made by the Edison Company. Best song. Best song goes to The Continental. From the Gay Divorcee, music by Con Conrad, lyrics by Herb Magidson. So again, this is another award that was introduced this year. So this is the first winner of that um, of that category, and this is also the second film to feature Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, which is probably the most iconic Golden Age Hollywood duo, um, which is kind of what Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone were trying to do in La La Land, which we both love. Best scoring went to One Night of Love for the Columbia Studio Music Department. Again, another category that was first introduced, and this is the first winner of it. Again, you see the combination of the overall music department and not one specific artist or recording artist. Right. Best short subject cartoon, The Tortoise and the Hare from Walt Disney. Another one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, let's just keep on giving it to Walt Disney for this category. It's not going to stop. I mean, he's defining what cartoons are. He's defining what what the industry is. Yeah, what pre-show comedy and pre-show cartoons are for the film industry. Yeah. So, moving on. Best live action short subject novelty went to City of Wax, Horace Woodward, and Stacey Woodward. Best live action short subject comedy goes to... La Cucaracha by Kenneth McGowan and Pioneer Pictures. Best original story went to the Manhattan Melodrama written by Arthur Caesar. So this uh, this film also featured Clark Gable and it's more famously known for the film that John Dillinger saw before he was shot leaving the theater. I didn't, I mean, I didn't know that's how John Dillinger was killed, but like, <laughs> you know, I'm sure that movie must have been good before he died. Just think about that when you watch, next time you watch Manhattan Melodrama. Melodrama. <laughs> Best adaptation goes to It Happened One Night, written by Robert Riskin, based on the story Night Bus by Samuel Hopkins Adams. So this is the first win of the five nominations that uh, It Happened One Night was given. Do you agree that it deserved this award? Oh, for sure. Without a doubt, the writing in this film, I mean, we talk so much about how good the writing is, not only for each individual character and their viewpoints, but overall for the entire film what it's trying to say, the themes that they're pushing, while also being really funny, really entertaining, and just filled with just nonstop comedy and action. So comparing this to a previous uh, Best Adapted Screenplay winner, which is the only film, Best Picture winner to have won a writing 
award and that was Simmerin. Uh, it won for best adapted screenplay or best writing adaptation um, in 1930, 31. So how does this screenplay to you compare to Simmerin's screenplay? It's so funny because they're so different. Yeah. Like they couldn't be any more different. This is a character-driven piece about two characters, you know, coming together. That's so light on plot, while Simran is so heavy on plot. It's so concerned about the time and depicting the overall kind of uh, depicting the the setting and depicting the accuracy of what happened during those times in uh, uh, Ohio. I'm forgetting this. The state was the state that. Oklahoma, yeah. what happened during those times in Oklahoma. And yeah, they couldn't be any yeah. more different. I understand why people would give Simran just because it's such a big, grandiose story that kind of is pulled together. But yeah, this is my preferred writing style. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and I think that uh, as time has gone on, I think the screenplay that people like to work like to work on is a film like It Happened One Night. Quick dialogue, great, well, not just quick, great dialogue and characters that just are jumping out of the page to be played. Whereas in Simmering, it's like a little iffy if you really want to play those characters. Best actress. I went to Claudette Colbert for It Happened One Night as Ellen, Ellie Andrews. So now this is the second of the five nominations that the film won for. This is the first time that a Best Actress winner has went with a Best Picture winner which to this day is still the lowest occurrence of any acting category best picture winner, which is at 11 times total. So only 10 times more has a actress won best actress and was a part of the best picture um, winner as well. Make of that of what you will. I think that's a pretty shitty (laughs) stat to be a part of. Yeah, it's pretty unfortunate. I think that just kind of shows the male dominance of the film industry and especially what films are awarded um, for best picture. Yeah, and this category also uh, was of significant controversy at the time because Betty Davis was not nominated, and she was a write-in. Um, so it's not an official nomination, but people were so up in arms of like, why, well, why weren't weren't you nominated? Why wasn't she nominated? Um, that they were like, okay, well, we'll write her in, but she's not like an official nomination. She's probably not going to win. And I haven't seen that movie, but how if you can top Claudette Colbert and it happened one night, prove it to me. <laughs> Best actor goes to Clark Gable, and it happened one night. Now, this is the last time that those in the best actor category were all first-time nominees, as well as the last time until the 43rd Academy Awards, where either leading acting category had all first-time nominations. So, Ben, do you think Clark Gable's performance is worthy of the best actor Academy Award? Oh, yeah, 1,000%. I mean, he was uh, called the King of Hollywood for a reason. He He was, his star was like, starting to rise before this, but this just skyrocketed it it, into the stratosphere that I think few have able to reach since. Um, And I think what's significant about this is just like the lasting impact that it's on, especially on his roles, because he would then go on to be nominated two more times and two more best picture winner films. So it just goes to show that he was an actor that you wanted to have in a film because it's not only going to be a big marketing appeal, but you're also going to probably get that Oscar B Uh, attractive because of a name like Clark Gable. Yeah, definitely. And another little nod here for William Powell, who is in uh, one of the most talked about films of the year beside it happened one night, which is the thin man. And he plays Nick Charles. So I haven't seen the film. I don't think Ben has either, but that's uh, another film that we have on our watch list and uh, we can't wait to watch it. Yeah. Probably on worthy season two that comes out in like three years. (laughs) Anyways. uh, So that's our third of the five nominations that, 
it happened one night was getting. I think maybe you can kind of catch on to what I'm trying to allude to right here. The next category, though, is Best Director, and that went to Frank Capra for It Happened One Night. Um, this was the first of three Academy Awards for Best Director that Frank Capra was going to get. It is tied for the second most with William Wyler, and it is only one less than the most ever at four, which is John Ford uh, for Best Director. So Frank Capra um, has really made his mark, I think, with this film, and he'll go on to do it with his next few ones that he wins for in any film he makes after it. But this film in particular, I think, has left its mark on Hollywood and filmmaking for just for forever. You can see any type of rom-com, you know, cliche or aspect that you try to throw into a film probably came from Capra. Uh, He's that important to American cinema, and it's his viewpoint that really just comes out of this film that brings in everyone, that brought everyone in America in 1934 together to truly celebrate and be like, yeah, this is the best film of the year. The reason why I think Frank Capra deserves the Best Director Award is specifically his world building. You know, world building is so integral to films and you have to establish a world that makes sense and its own reality in the film. But what I love so much is that every side character in this movie has a name. You know kind of who they are. Um, Even a random hitchhiker or a random uh, person that picks them up uh, while they're hitchhiking has a name and they're established and you kind of get a good feeling who they are. And he has this backdrop of the of the depression and he's building this entire world so clearly yet still has all this time to like bring out these detailed characters and this really amazing script and this really great performance with this amazing blocking that these two actors have back and forth. And then on top of it, now that we know like the history of the production, this was only made in four weeks. And the two main actors hated each other. So I think that's only another huge nod to the man. Yeah, And we didn't even talk about it all, like the cinematography of the film, which is it's stagnant and it's, it is very stagnant and it's very sitcom-y where it's just kind of in like one set and the camera just pans back and forth at times, but it's still, uh, it's still beautifully, beautifully shot. You know, there's one scene in particular where Peter is carrying Ellie over his shoulder across like a, it's not like a deep river, but it's like, you know, he yeah. doesn't want her to get wet. So he's willing to take the sacrifice, put her over his shoulder. And it's like these, the silhouette of them walking across and like, he, he knows how to light a night scene really well. And so it, I, so like from every aspect and everything you want to check off for as a director, he nails and it's, and it goes beyond what it needs to do. And any person who tries to make a movie similar to it, they just have to say thank you to Frank Capra. Yeah. It's so hard to not just talk about the characters because they're so interesting and dynamic that we did skip right over the cinematography and lighting by Joseph Walker. Uh, and I, I love it. It's probably yeah. the most beautiful film that we've seen uh, so far out of the Best Picture winners. Um, uh, again, obviously black and white, but it's beautiful with how they j- adjust and play with the light and shadow. Um, yeah, it's by far, I think, the most beautiful film that yeah. we've seen yet. I, I think that it says a lot about the film itself when two people who you know fucking cry over about like guys like Roger Deakins who create these beautiful shots, how we didn't even talk about how well shot and what, how beautiful this film looked just because every other aspect of it is, is perfect. Yeah. The use of lighting and rain. Mm. Oh, amazing. there's, there's a, so much rain in this yeah, movie. I love it. So amazing. Why, why do you think there's so much rain in this movie? Do you think it just because it forces them into each of the, each of the rooms together? Do you think? I think so. Yeah. I think it definitely forces the characters to be intimate with each other. And again, I think there's a weird, 
subtlety to rain and being wet with not only being <laughs> yeah. that uh, really on the nose sexuality, but also when you get wet, you need to take a shower, you need to yeah. get dressed you, and you need to get undressed and you gotta go, you do something private. Yeah, in exactly. Order to be presentable in a way. Exactly. Yeah. And it's also beautiful to look at yeah. on film. Yeah. Well, we can just obviously keep talking about this film, but <laughs> but we won't. Well, well, I guess we will because now the category for outstanding production uh, is the nominees were The White Parade, Viva Villa, The Thin Man, One Night of Love, Imitation of Life, The House of Rothschild, Here Comes the Navy, The Gay Divorcee, Flirtation Walk, Cleopatra, The Barretts of Wimpole Street, and the winner of the Best Picture Award of 1934 went to It Happened One Night to Frank Capra and Harry Cohn for Columbia Pictures. A clean sweep of the five awards that it was nominated for, and the five awards that it was nominated for is the big five or the grand slam of the Academy Awards. So before we even talk about the worthiness of this film of being a Best Picture winner, how do you feel about that this film is part of the big five awards that was only accomplished? And the big five, just to reiterate, are Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Actress, and one of original or adapted screenplay. It was only done two other times. The other two films were One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and The Silence of the Lambs, which are two totally different films than this one. So how do you feel about like this film holding that significance of Oscar history? I think it's really telling for how just compelling this film is and how much people loved it. And I think audiences loved it in particular. What's really interesting is that this is, I think, by far the longest nominations for outstanding production we've seen yet. And yet it won all five awards. So that, you know, makes my gears turn a little bit like, why are there so many nominations if this <laughs> then win It's five? like so obvious, yeah. Yeah, so I'm not sure. Like, are these great movies that they just wanted to still put nods to? But I think that's the thing that we see today where it's that everyone wants to feel included into the process and the pool of what could be a best picture. But we all know... You, typically like what are the films that are going to win although there are some surprises some here but typically we know at least two or the th- two or three movies that are going to be in competition for it so it's just like yeah we're just going to toss you in there and like the the indb ratings for all these movies are pretty low except uh so it happened one night is an 8.1 and the only one that comes close to it is the thin man and an eight everything else is well below that um, I think flirtation walk is the no actually one night of love is the lowest at a 5.6 so it's just like it goes all over the place with how like people look back at these films but I think it stands more it, or it tests more to how great it happened when it was because it still holds this like amazing score on IMDb definitely and I think it also plays into how the Academy Awards are growing and they're becoming something bigger than maybe what they originally imagined and, you know, with it's causing people to have protests, you know, getting angry about the nominees and who's being awarded. So maybe they're getting to the point where everybody wants this recognition. They're seeing what it's doing in the box office. They're seeing how it's grabbing people's attentions beyond just the inner, cir- inner circle of Hollywood. So I think that's kind of a maybe a sign as to why there's so many nominees here for outstanding production. Yeah, it just this film just hits it on all fronts. And um one other thing before we, again, we talk about the worthiness of this film. Actually, this kind of fits into the worthiness of it, is how this film now, uh, how this film compares to the other Best Picture winners. Because that is the point of this podcast, which is to compare all of them together. So we've had many, we've had a few different uh, styles or, or genres of film. So the, with Wings, we had a war film, the Broadway Melody. We had a musical, All Quiet the Western Front. We had a war film. Cimarron was a, 
a, a Western epic. Uh, Grand Hotel was the star-studded event, and Cavalcade was another like wartime epic. And it happened one night is a screwball comedy. Where does that fit in? And in fact, I feel like it does fit in better than the other ones. This movie feels like more of a Best Picture winner than... Well, I, I'll leave it all quiet on the Western front because that one's really good. But the other ones don't feel like they would be winners at all in today's age. This would be the film that would win. Yeah, we have heavy themes in films like All Quiet on the Western Front and Simran's kind of grandiose and Wings is this big epic war film as well. I think this film stands out specifically not only because it's this newish genre that kind of defines what a rom-com is or screwball comedy is, but it also just nails it right on the head and it set all these expectations that you now see so prominent throughout uh, film history and in this genre. I don't think any of these other films really defines a specific genre. I guess you could maybe argue for Wings defining what a war film is. Um, but even that, that's pretty bare bones. Like, you don't look at Wings and think, uh, oh, like, Saving Private Ryan or um, a, a newer war film is exactly Punk like Wings. Kirk, yeah. yeah, and these films don't, like, completely replicate what Wings did. Wings definitely has things that inspired other films down the line, but I don't think any film has inspired further filmography than It Happened One Night. So before we give our worthiness, which you probably can see that what we're going to say if it's worthy or not, let me just give some ratings. So I gave this film a 95 out of 100. John, what do you give uh, It Happened One Night? I gave It Happened One Night a 85 out of 100. Which is still a very good score. Definitely. Uh, it's my highest along with uh, All Quiet on the Western Front with an 85 as well. Yeah. So to kind of... Uh, give our average ratings and this is we've only seen seven films so far i'm at a 67.8 on my average score and john you're at a 59.2 or they'll call it a 59.3 for rounding up purposes um so we've had some films that have like brought down that average score by a lot but i feel like right now we're about to start hitting um we're about to hit a groove with like some really good films and it was a bit of a struggle with some of the previous ones but i, I feel like it happened one night starts to pick up the game a little uh to give some more ratings and context for this so on rotten tomatoes the percentage for it happened one night is a 98 percent and the average rotten tomato rating from the critics is a 9.13 out of 10 uh, the audience score is a 93 percent which is right now the highest out of any of the other previous best picture winners at a 4.37 out of 5 imdb gives it an 8.1 which is again the highest uh imdb rating out of any of the best picture winners before it um and it was a clean sweep of its nominations and won the big five awards so john we have to answer that question is it happened one night worthy of the best picture award of 1934 yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> 1000 yes yeah no 1000 percent yes is, is exactly right yeah i think the film hits it on every single point. Like you care about the actors while the plot's thin, you care about the actors or the characters going from A to Z and you see a bigger picture with the world and you have these themes and you have the relationship and it's just damn satisfying to see Clark Gable and uh, Claudette, 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 Colbert. Claudette Colbert yeah. um, go back and forth. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't, this is definitely the film I would recommend anyone to go see so far out of the seven that we've watched just cause it's, not only the most digestible but it's the most fun it's the most entertaining and most modern feeling film i think yet yeah it's it's a movie that has truly stood the test of time it i watched it the last the night before we recorded this just to watch it again and i was just as much in love of it as i was the first time the 
acting is incredible. The dialogue is incredible. I love so many scenes of it. The flying, the man of the flying trapeze scene is, I, it's one of my favorite scenes I've ever seen of any film. I don't know why. I don't know if it's because it's music and I love music and it brings everything together for the characters in the film. But if there's one scene you can watch, like watch that one. It's just like really well done. You know, in fact, go watch this movie. I, I would, I would beg people to go watch this movie because it's a movie that, um, that I don't, I don't, I'm not going to say that it's lost on people's minds, but it's not a movie that's talked about enough. Um, so many people love it. You know, Spielberg <laughs> purchased Gable's Oscar for $607,000. Uh, and he promptly donated the statue back to the Academy Awards just because it was like that significant of a, of a moment in time and history that Spielberg was like, yeah, this Oscar can't just like go to someone. This has to go back into the, to the people in the right hands that it belongs to. Um, so it's, it's just an incredible film and it's incredibly worthy of the best picture award. Yeah. I think before we cap it on the episode, I think it may be a little interesting and to discuss what we think it happened one night means as a film title overall, because it is, it's not very specific in terms of a certain character or the themes or the overall plot. So Ben, what do you think it happened one night means? So I think that there are four possible uh, choices if we're going to do multiple choice. The first is when Peter and Ellie first meet on the bus and she sleeps on his shoulder. So it happened that night when she they first met. The second it could be the first night that they stay in the same room when the walls of Jericho first came up. So they first really got to know each other privately and, um, and on a personal level. Uh, I think the third possible... It could have been when Ellie is freaking out, Peter, thinking that Peter had left her. Um, and this was on a farm that they like slept on a bunch of hay and he like walks away to go get food and she's like freaking out that he's not there. And then the last it could be when Ellie reveals her love to Peter when that night she reveals that she reveals it. She reveals that she does love him. So I think it could be any of those four. Although for me, I think I'm actually going to pick when they first met on the bus and that's the it thing that happened that one night was yeah that they came together yeah it's really interesting i love the name because it makes you think so much and for some reason for me it's not even like a specific moment for what it happened it, for me the, it, this title almost reminds me of like you meet a friend of a friend and they're a couple and you're like oh well, you guys are like you guys have such good chemistry like you guys are adorable as a couple like how did you meet and they just say like oh it happened one night because there's not like a specific moment or something like that that like would be able to explain how these characters work so well together. It's just as simple as we just clicked, like it happened yeah. one night and that's how well we work together. And I think it's a perfect name for this movie. Yeah. It could, it could be a total, it can be a number of things. Could It could be sex. It could be love. It could be a kiss. It could be sleeping on the shoulder. It could be sleeping on the, it could be a number of things that happen in this movie. But I think just what ultimately happens overall is that this film is great and it's still, and always will be a great film. So that is, it happened one night. This is worthy. John, any last remarks before we sign off? The walls of Jericho are toppling. The walls of Jericho are toppling. I'm Ben. And I'm John. And this is worthy. Oh, uh, do you mind if I ask you a question, frankly? Do you love my daughter? Any guy that had fallen in love with your daughter ought to have his head examined. Now, that's a division. She picked herself a perfect running mate, King Wesley, the pill of the century. What she needs is a guy that'll take a suck at her once a day, whether it's coming to her or not. If you had half the brains you're supposed to have, you'd have done it yourself long ago. Do you love her? A normal human being couldn't live under the same roof with her without going nutty. She's my idea of nothing. I asked you a simple question. Do you love her? Yes! 
But don't hold that against me. I'm a little screwy myself. Thanks for listening to Worthy, the breakdown of every Best Picture winner from past to present. You can listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out on Instagram at Worthy Podcast, on Twitter at Worthy Pod, and on Facebook at Worthy Podcast. Any inquiries can be submitted to worthysubmissions at gmail.com. Again, that's worthysubmissions at gmail.com.